The others have a real life. I'm just here. Four times a year, I do the pastoral assist just to give them a break. They do a wonderful job, and we're blessed to have them. Um, today, our reading from the scriptures is Second Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers. And the king of Maacah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought against or fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that we can glean from it about you. Father, we want to thank you this morning that it is your will that our hearts be filled with your joy and that we walk in joy. 
Father, we praise you that your joy is durable. It rises above all of trials and all of circumstances. Your joy is our strength, and we need it so badly, and we're so grateful for it. We bless you this morning as the fountain of our joy. We do pray, Father, that you would forgive us for so often being such poor representatives of you. We confess far too often our countenance and our emotions are far more influenced by the afflictions and difficulties of life than your joy in our hearts. We confess that we have foolishly placed our idolatrous hopes on the things of this world, our comfort, careers, reputation, and we too often look to them to find our joy. We confess that they never satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. They always fail to live up to their false promises, and we end up with our wings broken, in desperate need of your cleansing and the gift of repentance that only you can give. God, we pray that you would help us to more consistently look to you to satisfy the deep cry of our hearts. Keep us from believing the lies of the evil one who would deceive us into placing our hope on anyone or anything other than you to give us satisfaction. Father, we ask that you give us soft and broken hearts for those we see perhaps every day who don't know you and who are vainly seeking to find hope and meaning in the broken and empty cisterns of this world. Father, would you help us to never forget that these people, these lost people may have lots of money and be happy on one level, but their hearts are empty and their lives are vacuous. God, tear the veil from their heart. Cause them to see that however comfortable or prosperous they may be in the treasures of this world, they are, in your sight, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Cause us to to see them as you see them, as those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Father, we want to pray for our leaders today. God, the darkness of this world is more clearly seen than in most of our lifetimes. Our fallen world is filled with people who call light darkness and darkness light. Father, would you bring our leaders, whether it be a president or our city councilor, out from under the cloak of deception Cause them to see this world through your eyes. Give them wisdom to rule wisely. Father, we know that your answer for this world is not government. It is you working through your church. And so we pray for your church, your bride today, and we ask that you re revive your lukewarm church. Father, so that the world would once again see the beauty of your son Jesus among his people. Inflame our hearts, renew our minds, cause us to regain our first love for Jesus, help us to see the height from which we have fallen. Father, we pray for those in your church here today who are sick or afflicted in some way, anyone who's struggling physically, mentally, emotionally. Father, we pray for Brenda Levin as she recovers from surgery and John Hickson that he would fully recover from his recent affliction. Father, we pray for the family and friends of Mary Jean, who passed this week. We pray that you'd comfort those who are grieving her loss. Help them, comfort them during this time of sadness. Father, as we turn now to your word, from your grace and mercy, would you bless your servant? Would you make him a means of grace 
for all of us to know you more deeply and love you more freely and worship you with more constancy. Come, Holy Spirit, teach us, transform us through your word, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This week we remain, as we read earlier, in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel as we again look at the life and reign of King David. Even though the content of what we looked at last week in chapter 9 is actually quite different than chapter 10 this week, there is at least one common theme that connects chapters 9 and 10. Last week, just to review just a bit, in chapter 9, we saw David's desire to show covenant loyalty to his old friend Jonathan by fulfilling a covenant he made with Jonathan 20 years earlier. And he fulfilled that covenant by taking Jonathan's son Mephibosheth under his wing and richly blessing him in at least two ways. First, he gave him King Saul's former estate and he invited him to eat at his very table, which was a privilege reserved really for really the most senior leaders in Israel and the king's family. David's kindness to Mephibosheth more than exceeded his covenant obligation to Jonathan. But we see this same burden of David for covenant loyalty in chapter 10. But this time, it's not directed to somebody within Israel. It's directed to a foreign leader of all people. In chapter 10, verse 2 that we read just a minute ago, after David hears of the death of Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, he says, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. That's very similar to what David expressed back in chapter 9, where in verse 1 we read, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now where the connection with those verses is, the word translated kindness in chapter 9 is the same one translated loyally in chapter 10. The word is covenant loyalty, and it's from the Hebrew word Chesed, which some of you have heard before. In chapter 9, David wants to show covenant loyalty to Jonathan, and in chapter 10, he has this same concern for Hanan, the son of the late king of the Ammonites. We don't know if there was a formal covenant between David and Nahash. Maybe there was. We don't know. It doesn't say that. But the, the words he's using indicate that there's that kind of covenant loyalty that he wants to show this man. We do know that David had a good relationship with his former king, and he, his loyalty was motivated by his desire to bless this man, show kindness to the, this man. The common thread, again, connecting both chapters is David's common desire to show kindness or this covenant loyalty to the son of someone with whom he had a former warm relationship when they were alive. So there's a connection between 9 and 10. And when you see connections that are that direct, the author's putting it there on purpose. That's not a coincidence. He wants us to see the connection. And that helps us answer one of the questions that we should bring to every Old Testament text in particular, and that is, why is this here? Why did the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, choose to include this particular story in the larger narrative? Why, at this point in the story, do you have a story highlighting Israel's military dominance over its neighbors, when in chapter 8, the author has already given a summary of David's military dominance. Why would he repeat this in more detail? 
Well, again, there may be multiple reasons, but perhaps most importantly is this larger section of 2 Samuel in chapters 9 through 20 is dominated by David's sin with Bathsheba and the resulting horrible consequences that sprang from that. So how does this strange account of humiliated diplomats and an unexpected war with a former ally, how does that fit into the bigger picture of David's sin? Well, as we saw last week, one reason the author includes the contents of chapter 9 and now chapter 10 is to cause the reader, to cause you and me, to contrast the David revealed in chapters 9 and 10 with the seemingly very different David revealed or who emerges in chapter 11. Before we get into that, let's just review some of the important details of the story. To you who read your Bibles through in a year, this is a familiar story. The king of Ammon, King Hanan, dies, and David sends a group of representatives, diplomats, to come and convey to Ammon their sympathies and their consolation. Ammon was a smaller nation than Israel, less powerful, located east of Jerusalem across the Jordan River. Leaders of other countries send representatives to a grieving nation even today. I'm sure we sent a representative over to the UK for Prince Philip. This was a kind gesture from David, and there's no indication that he has any other motivation in doing this other than to bless Nahash's son, Hanan, with some kindness, or chesed, covenant loyalty, in return for the loyalty that Nahash had earlier shown him. The fly in the ointment is this terrible advice the new Ammonite king's counselors give to him. They wrongly assume that David's real motivation in sending these men is to spy out the Ammonites in preparation for a war. We don't know why these men chose to ascribe to David such rotten motives, but they do. In response to this mistaken assumption, King Hanan, according to verse 4, took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now, today, this specific act of aggression that Hanan brought on these Jewish diplomats is a fairly ridiculous thing to do. To our ears, cutting off half a man's beard, either the left or the right, and shearing off his clothing, that's just plain bizarre. I don't think that would probably happen on the world stage today. But in the ancient Near East, these were egregious acts that were intended to humiliate this, these men and their king and their nation. The ancient Near East, like much of the East today, is what we call a shame and honor culture. And in that con context, the worst thing you could do to a man, even worse than killing him, was to publicly humiliate him, especially in the area of his masculinity. And in this part of the world, a man's beard at that time was a defining sign of his manhood. It was a defining sign of his masculinity. All the men grew beards because part of being a man in that culture was that you wore a beard. So when someone forcibly holds a man down and shaves off either the left side or the right side of his beard, this is a direct attack on his identity as a man, as his masculinity is thoroughly dishonored. In our culture, where we have foolishly tried to erase all forms of masculinity, this valuing of masculinity is pretty hard for us to understand. 
But in the ancient world where masculinity was central to a man's sense of identity, this was a tremendous insult. The same is true for cutting off a man's garment at the hips. This would, of course, expose everything beneath the hips, and it would be hard to imagine anything more deeply humiliating, not only for these men, but also for David and the entire nation of Israel, who these people represented. Even though this enraged Israel, David in particular, and the temptation would have been for immediate retaliation, David doesn't do that. Instead, he shows compassion and empathy for these men who have been humiliated. Wait in Jericho until your beards grow back, then come home. The Ammonites could not have devised a more effective way of provoking a former ally to war. The Ammonites anticipate a hostile response from David, and so because they were smaller and less powerful than Israel, they hire thousands of soldiers, we call them mercenaries, from surrounding regions. According to the account of this battle in 1 Chronicles, Nahash paid the astronomical sum of 1,000 talents. A talent was 75 pounds. So 1,000 talents of silver to hire this army of mercenaries to fight against Israel. The number of soldiers Hanan enlists for this first battle with Israel is at least 33,000. Compared to some of the other Old Testament battle narratives, there's not a lot of detail here. What we do know is that Hanan mobilized his troops before Israel could mobilize theirs. And that gave them and the mercenaries a strategic advantage of being able to deploy one battery of troops at the gate of the city of the Ammonites, which was probably Rabbah. But in addition to that battle group, the Ammonites were also able to deploy a second group of Syrian mercenaries out in the open country apart from the other group. So when Joab and the armies of Israel marched against Rabbah, they found themselves sandwiched in between two mercenary armies. For those of you who don't know much about war, this is not a place that any good commander would ever intentionally place his soldiers in between two hostile armies. That forces you to fight a two-front war, which makes everything a whole lot more difficult. So when Joab sees that he's been outflanked, he's forced to improvise. He places the most elite soldiers with him fighting the Syrians in the open country while giving his brother Abishai and his men the mission of defeating the Ammonites in the city. After some choice words of encouragement, the battle ensues. Again, no details of the battle are given. All we know is that once the battle is joined, First, one opposing army flees from Israel, and then, in rapid succession, the other opposing army goes away. The author gives the impression, anyway, that this happened pretty quickly. As it turned out, the decisive victory by Israel, how, however, was only the prelude to a second and much more serious battle, perhaps months later. We know it was months later because after this defeat, the Syrian king Hadad-Ezer sent for reinforcements from Syria, Syria was 300 miles away, so these troops and the chariots are going to have to go 300 miles. That took a while. You got 20 miles a day, typically, when you're walking. Okay, this was a much larger army, about 40,000 men, 700 chariots, and they came to fight against Israel. This second battle is serious enough that David, who is Israel's most able commander, he gathered the entire Israelite army against Syria. As we'll see later, he soon relinquishes this command to Joab. 
Again, almost no details of the battle are given here except that it continued during David's sin and through all the events recorded in chapter 12 up to the birth of David's second son with Bathsheba, Solomon. Do you understand that? So in the background of all the nonsense that's going on in David's life, there is this ongoing battle with the Ammonites. The net effect of all of this is in verse 19, and when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. The author's account of David's sin with Bathsheba in chapter 11 and its ugly aftermath is located right in the middle of this battle narrative with the Ammonites. It's like the hole in the donut. The battle narrative frames this entire section of David's sin. And the scholars tell us that this is the author's way of connecting the battle against the Ammonites with David's sin. He could have put the battle of the Ammonites in a separate chapter. He chooses to mix them up together. The scholars tell us it's because there's a connection between the two. Though there may be more than one theme that links these two things, perhaps the most striking, as we saw last week, is seen when we compare some of the specific ways that David responded before his sin in chapters 9 and 10 and his radically different responses to similar circumstances in chapter 11 and following after his sin. So that's the lens I think the author's telling us to look at this text through. The contrast between the David of chapter 9 and 10 and the David of chapter 11 and following are many. But the first one is, in chapters 9 and 10, David is burdened, as we've seen, to show covenant loyalty to those who have been important to him, both foreign and domestic. That's his burden. The author wants us to see David's abiding passion to show his loyalty because he places two instances of this side by side in two succeeding chapters. Okay, That's the author's way of saying, this is important. Notice this. Yet, when you turn to chapter 11, David's commitment to covenant loyalty has completely vanished and is replaced by a very different kind of commitment. In his adultery with Bathsheba, the king who is so committed to covenant loyalty destroys his multiple marriage covenants with his wives. He also causes Bathsheba to trash her marriage covenant with her husband Uriah. Oh, loyal King David has a complete absence of loyalty toward Uriah. It's abominable. Uriah's own loyalty to his fellow soldiers, by contrast, is such that when David tries to cover up his sin by manipulating Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, Uriah refuses the privilege out of loyalty to his fellow troops who cannot enjoy the same privilege. Contrast David's profound betrayal of Uriah and his earlier passion for covenant loyalty. David arranges for the murder of this trusted, loyal soldier Uriah in an attempt to cover up impregnating his wife. David's burden for covenant loyalty has completely vanished. Where did it go? Very similar to this is the fact that in chapter 10, David shows genuine empathy and compassion for his men, these diplomats who are treated so shamelessly or shamefully by King Hanan. 
the author makes a point of revealing that David feels terrible for these men who have been humiliated. He greatly empathizes with them and tells them, I'll protect your honor. Wait in Jericho until your beards have grown back. Where did this empathy for the state of his men run off to when David orders his nephew Joab to expose Uriah to certain death on the battlefield? In 2 Samuel 23, Uriah is named among David's mighty men. That is, he's one of the 33 most elite fighters in all of Israel's army. Uriah was the Israeli equivalent of of the army's delta force. Yet David doesn't hesitate to ask Joab to sacrifice one of his most loyal and decorated soldiers in order to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Where did the concern for David's demonstrated for his dignity and honor of these diplomats? Where did that go? Dignity and honor, concerned for the dignity and honor of other people. Where did that go when, like an oversexed teenager, he ogles Bathsheba during her bath? Where did his concern for honor go when he pressured her into sexual sin against God and her husband? In his completely self-centered lust, he shows no hesitation in scandalously destroying Bathsheba's dignity and honor. For the rest of history, David makes the name of Bathsheba synonymous with scandal and sexual sin. A third contrast between what we see here in chapter 10 and chapter 11 is this battle with Syria. When it became clear to David that he needed to personally command his troops, he didn't hesitate to lead them into battle. He knew he was the most skilled commander, and so he gave Israel the best he had. Where did that sense of duty go, however, when at the beginning of chapter 11, just before his sin with Bathsheba, we read, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Evidently, when the battle, when the Ammonites struck up again the next spring, David decided to stay home. One scholar says of this battle with the Ammonites, it was the fiercest struggle, and so far as the Israelite kingdom of God was concerned, the most dangerous military battle that it had had to sustain during the reign of David. So it's not as if this was a minor skirmish with the Ammonites here that didn't warrant David's superior military leadership. This was the most serious military threat to confront Israel during all of David's reign. Yet the author reveals here that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Now the last time it says he sent all Israel to the Ammonites, David was leading the charge. And yet here, with the same level of threat, David remains in Jerusalem and passes his time impregnating one of his officers' wives. What happened to David here? I'm sure we could find more points of contrast, but I think you're getting the point between the David of chapter 9 and 10 and chapter 11, where clearly the author is putting in things to highlight this huge, huge fall from grace that David experienced. Why does the Holy Spirit want us to see these dramatic differences between, on the one hand, David, the covenant-keeping, empathetic, and dedicated king and commander, and on the other hand, David, the deceptive, covenant-breaking, self-serving, leisure-loving, adulterous murderer? What are we supposed to get out of this? Well, let's close with two applications here. First, we must never forget that even the best people can do the worst things. 
Even the best people can do the worst things. Everyone has a need for heroes today and every day. That's why these Marvel superhero movies make boatloads of money. Because those superheroes are possessed not only of amazing abilities, but they're also loyal and courageous. And they're fighting for something, risking their lives for something bigger than themselves. The problem with our need for heroes is, in real life, all heroes have feet of clay. Even the most sincere, earnest people can play the hypocrite. Even the most upright, self-controlled people can go on disgusting rampages of sin. This is simply the way it is in a fallen world. And the Bible teaches this by providing us with two competing truths about the nature of humanity. The first truth is we are created in the image and likeness of God. We all, as is said, have a spark of the divine in us. Because we're image bearers of the glorious Lord of the universe, that means that humanity is capable of some glorious works of art and creativity. We're capable of intellectual accomplishment and brilliance. And we can at times outwardly demonstrate admirable nobility and character and compassion because we bear God's image. Anything you've ever witnessed in a fellow human being that was at all virtuous or impressive or amazing is explained only by the fact that human beings image a glorious creator God. His image is implanted on humanity and it explains every amazing achievement, every masterpiece, and every act of selfless service. The image of God on humanity. But the other truth in the scriptures about the nature of humanity is that we are fallen image bearers of God. In the fall of humanity, this glorious image of God was not totally obliterated. It wasn't erased, but it was horribly distorted. It was twisted. It was tainted with the vile poison of sin. And that means that every indwelling, in every indwelling every person including those who you see to be the most admirable, are strong impulses, desires, and tendencies toward self-centeredness and vanity and pride and personal betrayal and destructive stupidity, just to name a few. The potential for tremendous evil resides in even the best person you've ever known. That's the clear witness of Scripture. David reinforces that truth. We would be far less shocked when our heroes fell off their pedestals if we would remember this. A quick survey of the most admired Americans in the last century reveals that David has plenty of contemporary children. In many ways, FDR was a great man and a great wartime leader. He was practically worshipped by some people, but he was a serial adulterer in his private life. The same can be said for JFK, and Martin Luther King Jr. When he was shot outside the hotel room in Memphis, his mistress was in the hotel room. These men had greatness in them. They clearly displayed the image of God, but they were fallen image bearers. And these men habitually and in disgusting fashion cruelly betrayed the people they claimed to love the most on earth. We can also find this study of glaring contrasts in the rest of Scripture. David is not the only one who gives us these tremendous contrasts. Abraham, the man of faith, and all the patriarchs were liars. And sometimes they lied in exactly the same way. 
The founders of the 12 tribes of Israel were men with such flawed characters that no one but God would have chosen them to begin a new race of people. In the New Testament, the leader of the church, Peter, was a people pleaser who ended up betraying Jesus and leading even a saint like Barnabas astray into hypocrisy over Jewish law. Even the Apostle Paul, who was probably the greatest Christian to ever live, said this of himself, I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And later in the chapter, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. One obvious lesson for all of these dramatic contrasts within the same people is we should always walk in humility toward ourselves and toward other people. As it relates toward ourselves, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That should tell us at the very least that whenever we see people who are doing things that are disgusting to us, we should never think, assume, or even say, I could never do that. Yeah, you could. And if for some reason your particular background or your personality strongly disinclines you to do that, you're certainly capable of doing something worse. The sin that Jesus hated the most on earth was the sin of self-righteousness, which is manifest every time we say things like, I could never do that. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There are times when we have to bring correction on people in the church, but Paul strongly cautions us to do it with great gentleness and humility because next time it may very well be us the one who's being corrected because we're all fallen. We all do stupid things. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 2 to Jews who were disgusted by the sins of the Gentiles. Notice what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The root of Paul's warning to these Jews is that people who condemn other people do so for sins that they themselves commit. Translation, we all live in glass houses. Everyone here this morning has a Pharisee living inside their hearts, and by God's grace, we had best learn to live humbly with that truth and not be tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought or to condemn others for doing what we do too. A second and even more important point of application is only Jesus will never fail or disappoint us. Only Jesus will never fail or disappoint us. He's the only hero. One of the reasons under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that David's sin and its consequences figure so prominently in this story is to clearly differentiate King David from the son of David, King Jesus. As we've said, David here is probably the most powerful figure in redemptive history in terms of how clearly he points to Jesus Christ. David is a wise king over God's people. 
He's a warrior king, an able warrior. He's a prophet, and he has a priestly role as well. He's the only one in the Old Testament to touch on all three offices of Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's a man after God's own heart, and he's a fallen sinner, just like the rest of us. And the account of his sin here in 2 Samuel forces us to make a clear distinction between David and the son of David, Jesus. Jesus is not an image bearer of God. He's God himself. The exact representation of his being, the radiance of his glory. Jesus is fully human and fully divine, and unlike every other human being in history, he alone does not have a sin nature. He's not only not fallen, he is a glorified human being. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Tempted in the same way we are without sin. And that's not just in actions, that's in desires, that's in attitudes. No sin. The older and wiser that we become about the darkness resident in our own hearts, the more impressive that becomes to us. He never had an impure motive. Never. He always lived completely for the glory of God. He perfectly submitted himself to every desire God had for him. He obeyed commandments from his father that were the most repulsive ever given to a human being. To become sin when he had no sin and receive from his father wrath that belonged to somebody else. He obeyed completely. Now, this is all the best of news for us because it means that Jesus could adequately represent humanity on the cross. He was fully human and could therefore pay the debt of sin humanity owed to God. But he was also a perfect human, which means he had no debt of his own to pay and could therefore act as a substitute for us. Because Jesus was a perfect human, that means that Jesus could live out a perfectly righteous life perfectly fulfilling all of God's law. In other words, he could live a life of perfect righteousness that he could then offer to God as a substitute for our highly imperfect lives. That's justification. That's the transfer of the righteousness from Jesus Christ, an alien righteousness we heard in Sunday school, from Jesus Christ to us. When Jesus is united with a redeemed sinner, that sinner is given the opportunity to claim the righteousness of Jesus as his very own. And you don't get into heaven just by being forgiven. You have to be righteous. And the only way a sinner can be righteous is if they're given the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. We could never satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law, not even for a microsecond, but Jesus did that in the place of all who will look to him in faith. The darkness of David's sin sets off a powerful contrast with the glorious and beautiful Savior who is uniquely qualified to save sinners like us. May God give us the grace to be deeply moved by these truths as the Spirit impresses upon us the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, there's nothing that was said today, especially by way of application, that we didn't know. And yet we need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded that within us, 
even on our best day, resides a monster of iniquity. Help us never to forget that. Help us to be humbled by that in healthy ways, not with self-hatred, but just knowing that we're desperately in need of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would enable me, enable all of us to walk around here in humility toward one another and toward ourselves. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, who you in your gloriously brilliant redemptive plan sent to become a human being, to live the kind of life we could never live and to die the death that we deserve to die. Thank you for living a perfectly righteous life and thank you for imputing that life, that righteousness to anyone who trusts in Jesus. We receive that. And Father, if there's anyone here who has not been forgiven, who has not been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus, give them the grace to see that and the grace to believe today, whether they're here or watching over the live stream. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.